Um, most of you are very aware that I, I grew up on a farm. And at this time of year, we usually had a bit of barley coming into the sheds. And I, I, many of you I know probably haven't had the wonderful joy that it is to try and sort out barley in the agricultural year. But the whole process is quite long. It starts all the way back in, in winter where you usually go on what is the rainiest and wettest day of the year and you stand in a field, clarried in mud, walking through it, looking for stones. And you pick up the stones and you put them in the bucket of a digger so that whenever the tractor comes along and puts a seed into the ground, it doesn't hit a stone and wreck the machine that puts the seed in the ground. And usually what happens is, is that the machine gets hit a few times by stones and it has to, you have to get a mechanic to come out and fix the cedar. And it's a whole palaver and it goes on for about a week. And then that's the seed in the ground, but then that's... You're, you're only part of the way there. The next stage is that you have to try and deal with the fact that all the local crows have now discovered that they have this ample buffet before them with nobody about. So you either have to try and install a barley banger that goes off at every waking hour of the night and annoys all your neighbors, or you put up a, stair, a scarecrow and you try and drive away birds from gathering the seed. And then eventually you go through the springtime and all of the springtime, what you're hoping for is that it, it, it's dry, but not too dry. Um, that, it's, that there's a bit of rain that gives it the water that it needs to grow up and grow tall, but not so dry that, or so wet that then it can't get any purchase and falls over. You're also worried in case there's too much wind, because if there's too much wind, the barley can fall over and then it's an absolute nightmare for the harvest to come along and collect it. And then whenever you finally get to about this time of year, it's a waiting game. And everybody waits for the first dry week. It can't be just a dry day. It has to be a dry week because you need the ground to completely dry out before you take what is possibly the heaviest piece of machinery known to man, which is a combine harvester, and drive it into the dampest field that you own. And you want it to not get stuck. And the difficulty is, is that in that week where you're waiting for the best weather of the year to get the combine harvester into the field, every other farmer in your area who relies on that combine harvester is also waiting. And so you have this week where if you're in bed for about, by about 4 a.m., you're doing fairly well. And at the end, you get into the shed and you sit there and you think, it is a small miracle that this is sitting in the shed. This has survived uh, rain, this has survived wind, it survived animals trying to eat the seed, and it, we have dealt with mechanical problems along the way. But it is a small miracle that this barley is now in the shed. And I imagine for a lot of you, that's probably quite a nice rose-tinted memory that you look back on from whenever you were kids and you maybe helped out your, your parents or your grandparents on the farm. But for, I'm guessing for the majority of you, you were not heavily reliant on the barley harvest this year. And we can sometimes feel quite divorced at this time of year from the sort of harvest that we, we talk about so much. But I think it's important for us to remember as Christians that though there is a physical harvest that we give thanks for, and there are fruits of the soil that we give thanks for, there is another miracle that we give thanks for, which is the fruit of the Spirit that God is at work in as, as He changes our hearts bit by bit. And harvest is as much about thanking God for the fruits of the Spirit coming in our hearts as it is the fruits of the soil, soil that go into our bellies. And I thought, as we come to think about this this evening, we'd look at it a little bit from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible on your phone, feel free to look it up, um, Isaiah chapter 5. And 
what happens in Isaiah 5 is Isaiah tells a parable. We're, we're probably very familiar with the parables of Jesus. But this is Isaiah who gets up and tells a parable to the gathered people of Israel in the temple. And it is all about this idea of producing a good harvest of the heart, a good harvest of the heart. And so he sings a song about a vineyard. So let's hear God speak to us, Isaiah 5, verse 1. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a good crop of grapes, but it yielded bad grapes or bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. And I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Amen, this is God's word. Um, it's probably not a very cheery story about a vineyard because we, we read about this vineyard where there's a huge problem. I, I, Isaiah begins to sing a song. He says, I will sing a song of my beloved and I will sing about his vineyard and his beloved is God and, and the vineyard he's singing about is a vineyard that belongs to God. And he begins to recount all of the ways which his beloved has cared for his vineyard. So what has he done? He's went through and he's cleared it of stones. So stones that would have choked roots as they've tried to went into the ground. He hasn't just went with cheap grape plants from Ikea. He's went and got proper, real, proper job grape plants that will yield a good fruit. He wants to protect it. He's built a watchtower and he's placed it over it. He's cut out a wine press because he thinks that this is going to yield a bumper harvest and I'm going to get a lot of crop out of this and a lot of wine out of this. But the issue arises whenever he says, then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only, only bad grapes. And you can imagine, if you're sitting listening to this song and you don't know the full context of what's about to come next, everybody's sitting there going, well, Isaiah's singing about clearly somebody who he really likes, somebody, maybe a close friend or a family member, who's planted and put all this effort into this vineyard, and this hasn't happened. And, and Isaiah then spins the question round on them. If you look down in verse three, he spins the question round to his listeners and he says, what more could have been done for my vineyard? What more could he have done to make it perfect or more fruitful and, and yield an even better harvest? And you can imagine everybody sitting there going, well, we can't think of anything. Everything has been done for this vineyard. It has been cared for in every way that you can care for it. It's been protected in all the ways that you want to protect it. There, there's nothing extra that could have been done for this vineyard. It has been lovingly cared for. And you can imagine almost that question of what more could my beloved have done for his vineyard? 
how that would have hung in the air and left almost an uncomfortable silence for his listeners as they begin to think of, well, something had to go wrong. What was it? What was it? And thinking, what was it? And Isaiah responds and tells him the full meaning of it then in verse 7 where he says that the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. He looks for justice, but bloodshed for righteousness, but her cries of distress. He then enables to spin them round and see the vineyard I'm talking about is you. And, and the fruit, the good fruit that you were meant to yield was righteousness, but behold, bloodshed. You were meant to produce the good fruit that is um, justice, but instead he got the wild grapes that are the cries of distress. And there, there's even a play of words going on here um, in the Hebrew, so it's um, the way that it, it, it's structured is that he looked for mishpat, but he got mishpach, and he looked for tazdaka, but he got tazata. Um, it, you can tell that it sounds great pronounced in my accent, can't you? Um, but there's this whole idea that these things were so close, but yet something has went terribly, terribly wrong. God had done everything for his people. There is nothing more that God could have done for his people. He had watched over them and protected them like a watchtower watches over a vineyard. He had cultivated them and cared for them as he brought them through the wilderness and fed them everything that he needed. He continually provided food and sustenance for them through the prophets and through the priests and through the worship of him and his word. There was nothing more that God could have done for his people. And yet they remain unchanged. They've encountered the wonderful grace of God as he's cared for them. And they remain indifferent. God has worked in them to produce a good fruit, but instead it yielded only bad fruit. Or in verse two where it says bad fruit, if you want to be really literal, it literally says stink fruit. And the difficulty that the hearers that Isaiah would have had around him at that time was they would have looked around them and thought, well, we're in the temple. The sacrifices are going on. The songs are being sung. What more could he want? We're producing the fruit that we thought we were meant to produce. And yet Isaiah says, the issue is not that they're not following the right religious laws or, or, or following the externalities of their faith enough. The issue is, is that they remained unchanged in their hearts. And that is why they don't care for justice, but only have bloodshed. Why they look for righteousness, but only hear cries of distress. And that ought to come as a big warning to us. Because as Christians, and especially at this time of year at Harvest, we reflect a great deal on the blessings that God has given us on the goodness that God has shown us, that every breath in our lungs is a gift from him, that the food that we'd have enjoyed over, over lunchtime today was a gift from him. We have been shown blessing upon blessing. We have been cared for in, in every way that really we could expect to be cared for. And yet, are we being changed by it? Are we being transformed by it? 
Is God looking at our lives and seeing a harvest of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is he seeing a harvest of wild fruit or stink fruit? And do we think just going through the motions of our faith, keeping up the externals, is modeling the good harvest that God is looking for? Or do we need transformed in a much more basic way and changed in a much more basic and transformative way in our hearts so that we produce not stink fruit, but fruit of the Spirit? Now, that is a heavy warning and that is a heady warning and that's something that we all ought to be looking for is how are we being changed by God? But we are people of grace. And we are people who trust that the Christian faith is not self-help. It is not try harder or do better or, or work more. But we believe that there is a place that we can go to and a person we can encounter that transforms us into people who produce good fruit, who produce a good harvest. If you have your Bible open with you, I encourage you to change it back to chapter four. Because Isaiah also has another prophecy. And it's a prophecy that isn't about an unfaithful vineyard, but it's a prophecy about someone who would be faithful. So if you look down at chapter four, verse two, Isaiah begins to say of a coming day that says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, and all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the woman of Zion, and he will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and of over all of the Mount Zion, over those who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge for the hiding place from the storm and rain. Isaiah tells of a wonderful day, a beautiful day, whenever the stink fruit that surrounds him passes away and the good fruit of the fruit of the Spirit and the glory of God are in abundance. And the thing that makes the difference is verse two, that day the branch of the Lord, the branch of the Lord, and, and that's, a, that's an imagery and that's a, a reflection and, a, and, a, and a, a glimpse behind the curtain of what God will do one day in Jesus. That we now get to celebrate that in Jesus, we get to go to the heart of transformation, to the heart of where we get changed and transformed, to the heart of where our natural selves that produce only stink fruit can be changed by his wonderful grace to produce wonderful fruit that is the fruit of the Spirit. And we look forward to that wonderful day as it comes finally and completely whenever we meet him in glory. But in part, we encounter that here and now. Um, up until this past week, uh, we've been doing the Beatitudes where in a sense we've seen how the Christian life is one modeled of humbling ourselves before God and being changed by his grace in a way that we cannot expect. Not in one go, not with a flicking of a switch, but over a lifetime and over decades. So as we go through this harvest, 
Would we reflect upon the wonderful, wonderful graces we have been shown by God? And would we use those as a way to bring us back to the fount of all transformation, the fount of where our hearts are cleansed, the fount of where we are changed from the inside out, that isn't self-help, but it's coming to Jesus, where we see he is the core that we are to gather around. He is the transformative power in our lives that we might be both sinners and righteous at the same time, that we might be people who produce good fruit by his grace and not stink fruit by our own efforts. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace, you transform us. We thank you that through Jesus, we encounter a grace that changes every aspect of our being. Father, would you help us be changed by the graces that you show us and help us look and cling all the more to Jesus each day as we see him producing more and more good fruit in our lives. Father, change us, we pray, by your spirit. Amen.